Do Christians have to follow the law of Moses? The disciples gather at Jerusalem for a big meeting to sort out this monumental question. On The Bible Brief. Tell a friend about The Bible Brief today. Your recommendation can help your friends learn the Bible in a whole new way. Tap share on your podcast player and share your favorite episode. All across the room, you could see their furrowed brows. The kind of expression indicating deep thought and the extreme gravity of their reason for meeting. Perplexity marked face after face. James understood the importance of such a decision, and it wasn't something that he took lightly as the de facto leader of the church here in Jerusalem. In fact, rather than render an immediate decision, he'd called upon others to give testimony and reasoning for their views on the matter at hand. They'd been debating for a long time, and the debate seemed to be making little progress in creating a consensus. The question before them was immense. Should the Gentile Christians be required to uphold the law that God gave through Moses? This question would have ramifications for the life of the global church, and to miss the mark would be to lead many astray. Should the Gentiles from the nations have to undergo circumcision as the law required? Should the Gentiles be forced to practice the purity laws and to abstain from certain foods? Should the burden of the law be placed upon the Gentiles who never knew the burden before? The Jews surely shuddered at this question. They remembered in their collective history the grave consequences of ignoring the law that God gave the nation. They remembered that God was patient with the people ever since they had left Egypt, but that His patience and His forbearance for sin finally ran out because they remembered the final defeat of the kingdom of Judah in 586 BC, announced beforehand by God as a judgment on their sins against him. Transgressions of the law that God gave the nation through Moses. In this decision, they were adjudicating a potential paradigm shift in the church, a shift where the church of Jesus, one who followed the law of Moses, might turn away from the very law that their savior upheld. They did have an advantage, though, that none of their forebears could claim. Each of the members of the council here in Jerusalem were houses of the Holy Spirit. Within each of them, the Holy Spirit was working out His purposes, guiding them into truth, convicting them of sin, and comforting their hearts. These many Christians together, with the apostles and the Spirit among them, would be led by God Himself. And in this they hoped. The question before them was immense, but God would lead them to the answer. Paul was recovered from the stoning at Lystra, despite the crowd's intent. They had meant death for Paul, but death didn't come to him then. Instead, he along with Barnabas continued their mission around the area, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God to all who would hear. Many came to faith and began new lives as disciples of Jesus and the Spirit's work in the region began to expand, as local churches were planted in the cities they visited. Finally, they were able to sail back to their sending church at Antioch in Syria, and finally they were able to stay in place for a while. They were able to share with the Antioch church how fruitful their mission had been and how many Gentiles had come to faith, even though many 
Perhaps most of the Jews had rejected it. It had been a great journey, though it had had its share of trouble and difficulty, not the least of which was the stoning of Paul at Lystra. Now, after a while of being back at Antioch, Simon Peter came for a visit. The apostle from among the original twelve came to this third largest city in the Roman Empire to visit the church there and to encourage the ministry in the city. He caught up with Paul and Barnabas, surely sharing some stories of ministry, and he ate many meals with the various people in the church. Yet after Paul had been here for a while, additional men came from Jerusalem who began to persuade Peter to abandon his course of action. They began to question Peter's decision-making, especially his decision to eat with Gentiles of the Antioch church. These men suggested that Peter should only fraternize with people who had been circumcised as the law of Moses required, rather than eat with those Gentiles as well, those sinners from among the nations that hadn't undergone circumcision like the Jews had. And Peter, well, despite his personal convictions to the contrary, he went along with these men and began to separate himself from the Gentiles in Antioch. The man who had seen the conversion of the house of Cornelius who understood that he shouldn't call unclean what God had declared clean. He still feared these men from Jerusalem and began to turn his back on fellowship with the Gentiles. Not only that, but even Paul's close partner in ministry, Barnabas, was swayed to do the same. Despite the great harvest experienced with Paul on their missionary journey, Barnabas began to separate himself from the Gentiles, just like Simon Peter. Paul, however, saw what was happening, and he was incensed, especially at Peter. In fact, Paul saw Peter's action as an affront to the gospel itself. He understood perhaps better than most in the church what was required by the law of Moses. After all, he'd zealously advocated for the law at the cost of many lives of the first believers in Jesus. Paul had belonged to the strictest of the Jewish sects, the Pharisees, and since he had become a believer in Jesus— he understood the foolishness of believing that one could be righteous before God by following the law of Moses. No one could be declared righteous by following the law, and it was only through faith in Christ that one could be declared righteous. Requiring circumcision or anything else in the law of these Gentile Christians implied that one needed faith and the law to be justified, rather than just faith alone. To this, Paul said an emphatic, No and he said it to Peter's face, confronting his hypocrisy before many in Antioch. This, however, wasn't the end of the controversy, because eventually it spilled over into the rest of the region. That is, until a great meeting was called in Jerusalem, a meeting that would hopefully, finally put the issue to rest. A meeting to determine whether some of the former Pharisees were correct that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, or if the Gentiles were free from any obligation toward the law. So this was the occasion for the meeting. A meeting of the apostles and elders with many, many more in attendance, including Paul and Barnabas. And at this meeting in Jerusalem, there was intense debate. Intense because those in favor of Gentile circumcision surely didn't want to experience God's cursing for disobeying the law. Intense, because many didn't want to force the Gentiles to do something that was needless and burdensome. Intense, because they all knew they had to get this right. But finally, after much debate, 
the man who stood perhaps surprised Paul and Barnabas. Because this was the same man who had to be corrected in Antioch, who appeared now to say something different than his actions in Antioch had communicated. Paul's words of correction were apparently applied and amplified by the Holy Spirit in Simon Peter's heart. So Peter stood and said this, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he gave to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a burden on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And next they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The silence in the room must have been deafening, a silence that either suggested great disagreement or deep consideration. Was it celebration in their hearts as they listened to Paul and Barnabas? Or was it consternation at this foolish ministry of theirs among the Gentiles? Peter had made an argument of freedom from the law, and his case was only being bolstered by Paul and Barnabas. Since the Holy Spirit was being poured out without regard to the law of Moses, wouldn't it be absurd to think that God required the law to be followed by these Gentiles? His Spirit indwelling the Gentiles was proof that God's blessing comes by His grace through faith and not through the law of Moses. Why should the church require the law of the Gentiles if God Himself doesn't require it? And then James broke the silence. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and his words would carry weight like no one else's. It would be with his words that a judgment would be rendered. And so he addressed the council like this. Brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James, one of the brothers of Jesus who apparently resisted him in life before turning to faith in Jesus after the resurrection, he stands and he says that his judgment is that the Gentiles shouldn't be troubled with the law of Moses. Rather, they should simply abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from sexual immorality, from meat obtained from a strangled animal, or from meat with the blood still in it. Now, these may seem like arbitrary rules on the part of James, but they form a core that resolves a tension that would continue to exist in the church. If the Gentiles were not required to keep the law, 
but there were Jews who still desired to keep it, then some concessions would be necessary to allow fellowship between these two groups in the church. The Gentiles wouldn't be required to undergo circumcision and keep the whole law. And yet, for sake of their Jewish brothers, they would be required to keep these four rules to allow them to be in a state of ritual purity for fellowship with the Jews. Now, to be clear, Gentiles and Jews remained subject to the same moral restraints and principles illustrated by the law of Moses. What this judgment by James was, was a judgment for maintaining fellowship between the two groups, not the suggestion that the two groups could or should differ in the morality illustrated in all the scriptures. James's judgment, then, was a judgment for fellowship and unity to come out of a very divisive issue. And the rest of the council reacted like this. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, with the following letter. From the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when the men were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Through this monumental Jerusalem council, fellowship had been maintained and strengthened in the church of Jesus. Unity flourished, and a significant question had been answered. Christians are not under the authority of the law of Moses. They do not have to be circumcised, and they are free from the burden of the law. Though some may choose to follow its precepts among the Jewish Christians, the obligation is gone. Instead, the grace of God, received through faith, working through love. This is the obligation of the Christian. Paul would later say this in a letter, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a burden of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be declared righteous by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love, a calling not to follow the law, but to fulfill it, to fulfill it as Jesus did, to follow Jesus, doing what Jesus did. Because as Paul would also say, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing less is required of the Christian. But this is no lower calling than the law of Moses. No, it's the highest calling in the universe because it means taking the steps of Jesus no matter where they lead. It means love when your life is on the line. And it means love when it costs you everything. To be a disciple then is not to be circumcised or to follow the law of Moses. No, it's to follow Jesus and to love as Jesus loves. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023